Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show. And if you do it that way, a little bit of money comes back to support the Jazz Session. And you'll find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the show directly. If you're interested in becoming an underwriter of the Jazz Session, you can contact me via the contact page at thejazzsession.com. My guest today is trumpeter, cornetist, flugelhorn player Stephen Haynes. He, Warren Smith, and Joe Morris have a new trio recording called Parhesia on the Engine Studios label, and it begins with this piece, Reclamation. My guest is uh, cornet player, trumpeter, composer Stephen Haynes. He's got a wonderful new record on the Engine Studios label with Warren Smith and Joe Morris called Parhesia. And uh, I, when I looked this up on, on Wikipedia, it told me that it was to speak uh, candidly and, and without also the connotation of speaking without regret. So, uh, Stephen Haynes, first of all, welcome to the show. And can you tell us uh, why you chose this album title? Well... To tell you why I chose the album title, which is really, in fact, the name of um, the group or the grouping of people that created the music, and so, in a way, the titling of the album is following the titling of the group, I would go back a number of years to around um, 2005. I was doing a residency at my local contemporary art space here in the Hartford area, which is called Real Artways, and I had a a grant to spend a year convening different groups and and doing open rehearsals and recording things. And one of the groups um, was a trio, and the idea of the trio was to um, 
create a work environment that at least my thought at the time was would engage in what you might call pure improvisation the idea being that from each time from time to time as i convene the group i might even change the members so that no one would completely know what was going on at any given time which is in direct contrast to a lot of what i was doing which involved writing and writing parts and rehearsing people it was just just something else to do and around the time that we were putting that together and trying that out as a musical concept um and this has been an experience a lot for me lately in the last five or ten years um, i really feel like things that you need are presented to you if you're paying attention and if you then pick them up and do something with you with them once they're given to you and in this case i was thinking well geez what would i call this and i was in the radio one day and i heard this amazing speech by uh, cornell west now remember the context was at that time bush was still in office as our president and so it was a long speech that he delivered about parhesia and the need for parhesia, meaning frank speech in a democratic context. And it just seemed to completely click with the notion of what we were doing and how we'd be moving together. So the group was called Parhesia. And when... Well, I don't know if you're going to ask me how we got it recorded. Maybe that's a separate question. <laughs> you, you can feel... Just imagine that I had asked you a question that intelligent, and you can feel free to continue right on if you'd like. <laughs> uh, well, I hate to break up the flow, because it was going nicely. Well, you know, we, 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 we worked... Well, you can always chop that out. We, we, we worked together in a couple of different combinations. I'd say the, say the one steady element in each of the combinations was... Joe Morris, either on bass or on guitar, because Joe also lives here in Connecticut with me, and I tended part of the point of the projects I was doing at the time, and even some of the projects that I'm doing now, was to really try to pay attention where it was possible and where it made sense to people who lived locally and regionally uh, in the work. Um, and Joe really fit that bill, and Joe is also a delight, you know, on a lot of different levels to connect with, to work with, to be with. Um, so one time we got together, it was Joe and I with uh, Senegalese Cora player who happened to be in residence at uh, UMass Amherst. And um, another time, I think we did it with a and It was different every time that we did it. Um, and then at a point, um, I want to say a year and a half, almost two years ago now, um, a young man, Steve, uh, Stephen Walcott, who runs a small label called Engine Records, uh, called me up and said, look, you know, I, I, um, I wonder if you'd like to do something. And, um, and if you did, then what would you like to, what would you consider doing? And I gave a list of projects from small to large, and he had interest in the trio. And so one thing left to, led to another, and we did, um, we did the work. I can tell you more about how the recording went, you know, as we go along, but uh, that's that's how we got to the first square of it anyway. And one question I wanted to ask was about, uh, and so in fact I will, was about the effect of now linking, now, now that I've heard you describe the process that led to the formation of this band and the intended point of the band, now you have kind of in effect linked this this band name with these three people playing this music that's on this record. And so I wonder... Uh, what, if any, effect kind of on the project as a whole is is the uh, is made by taking that snapshot or kind of you know linking all those things together an actual moment in time with this band uh, rather than just a concept of improvisation that changes every time. Do, do you mean what 
Uh, effect in what sense? Effect on the musicians? Effect on the market? I mean, what? Uh, maybe the effect. Uh, the effect on your conception of what this project means now that it's been documented in this way. Uh, whether you would do it again and with different people, or uh, whether anything no, has changed at this about point, it. Point. I would probably do it, want to do it again and do it with the same people. It's something really. Well, you've listened to the music, and I and I hope that the listeners will agree when they listen that something very. Um, special and very singular happened the day that we recorded um we we hadn't played together in something like two years i've known warren for 20 or 30 years and joe for a long time and so a lot of the idea of the orchestration really was relational which is actually a very traditional approach if you study how ellington did his work and a number of people in the music that we do have worked in this way so it is about the music, but it's also about how well-connected on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, on a lot of different levels, what kind of commonality you have with the people you do the work with and how that then creates a different kind of ground within which to create work. So I guess my answer would be, you know, having found something that's incredibly magical, yes, I'd want to do it. I, I think at the same time it would be worth saying to people who are listeners who might not know how the marketplace works is that even if I wanted to do it with a different cast of characters, often the way it works is that people hear the recording and say they want exactly what they heard on the recording. Um, meaning well, but, but that's, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes one has to do it even one, if one doesn't want to. In this case, that's not the case. I mean, look, we came down, it was a, a bone cutting cold day that day in Williamsburg. We drove, Joe and I drove down. Warren came across town, or across the bridge from, from, from Harlem. Set up. And see, now here's where it gets tricky, because if you start saying completely improvised, and the word free is even more nebulous as a term for a lot of different reasons, now and across time in the music, it's a very um, vague word, shall we say. Um, the idea of being in an improvising combination of people, whether it's three people or 30 people, both of which contexts I've been in more than once, and the whole notion of how leadership arrives, whether it's a formal stated leadership or whether it's a le leadership that arises during the work that while one's doing the work, my sense is that somebody is always leading in any situation. You know, whether the leadership is a formal thing and you're wearing a badge with a flashing light on your head or whether it's just something that's organic is, is another question. In this group, I'd say it was more of that. Clearly, it was my record date. Clearly, the people would not have been there if it had not been my record date. Clearly, because both of them are professionals, they were aware of the fact that it was about me and two of the people creating music. And so the way that they entered the music and what they did while they played with me in a collective situation was informed by that understanding, even though it wasn't overtly stated. Everything you do... My teacher and mentor for years is Bill Dixon, who just passed away recently. And Bill had a remark that he said more than once over the 30-plus years that I knew him, where he said, in this music, uh, notation isn't just what's written on the page. Notation is, if you're a leader, notation is how one enters the room, how one takes their instrument out of their case. And if you then unpack that and think, 
if people are expecting you to be in charge, then the moment you walk in the door, they're paying attention to everything that you do. The question is whether you're aware of that and whether you use that dynamic as a way to inform people directly or perhaps more subtly about what it is that is expected from them. Um, so this is like, a, we could spend hours just talking about this, but it's all about how you structure music and it's all about how you get um, musicians to do something that you want them to do. Whether you call that composition, whether you call that leadership, whatever you want to label, it's, 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 a, it's a, a musical function. Right. And that's one of my rambling manic digressions, but I hope that I've answered some of your questions and probably raised some more. In, in yeah, the bar. I, I think that's true. One of the statements uh, that you made a couple minutes ago was that the orchestration in this was relational and uh, kind of standing in for the listener here. I wonder if you could explain more about that to me. Well, uh, okay, so I cited Ellington. So let me give the ex Ellington example first, right, because it's maybe one that people might have more familiarity with. All Ellington's papers and scores and the parts and everything, I believe, are um, at Yale, or, or most of them anyway. And so let's say that one wanted to recreate Ellington's music, all right? So you get together the same instrumentation, the same number of instruments, um, and you pull out all the music and you put it on the stands and you've listened to all the recordings so you know how to, you think you know how to copy the recordings. But no matter what you're going to do, it's not going to sound remotely like anything Ellington did because the paper is like the simplest and most obvious part of how the music arrived. Look, with Ellington's band, for example, um, um, Harry Carney. Now, Harry Carney, who played baritone with Ellington, was with Ellington from the beginning when Ellington first took a band out of the road when I think Ellington was like, I don't know, 18, 19. Harry was underage. Ellington had to ask for permission to take Harry out on the road. And Harry Carney played with Ellington his entire life, Ellington's entire life. In fact, he uh, survived Ellington by, by a number of years. And Ellington created whole pieces of music uh, that were 
aimed at his childhood friend Harry, and in fact moved the baritone saxophone to the top of the voicings, above the alto saxophone in a lot of pieces, creating a signature sound. And he did it. Yeah, he was interested in it musically, but he was also interested in it for other reasons too, right? So, I think that when you decide who you want, back it out of the frame of music for a second and just imagine it this way, for for anybody in a day-to-day situation, if you could choose who you wanted to work with in any work situation, wouldn't you want to work with people who, who you trust, who you feel close to? whose abilities are complimentary uh, and supportive of what you're trying to do? Of course you would. I think music is no different. So given the choice to create a work environment like that, which in this case I was, um, at my age I've learned enough to know that you're better off if you're trying to do really difficult things to do them with people who you can trust to do the work in a certain manner. So... I don't know if that answers your question or not. But. Yeah, well, it, it answers a part of my question, and, and I guess uh, maybe a follow-up question then would be, okay, so then take us into the studio on January 3rd of this year uh, with Warren Smith and Joe Morris and, and how the things that you just described, for example, in Ellington situation, uh, apply to the music that we hear now on this record. Well... The preset would be maybe in the week preceding it, I called Warren up and I said, look, you know, I told him specifically what instruments I wanted to bring because he plays quite a range of things. I specifically wanted the small marimba that he has along with the trap set in the wall of gongs and the detuned bass drum because I use that. I use Warren in my quartet and I use the same thing minus the, uh, the marimba. Um, I also asked Warren, because I know that he does wonderful poetry, and he's also a great storyteller and narrator, to bring something that he was working on that he liked, or several things in a folder, and that we would do something. Everybody got there. We set up in a very small room, so we were really very, very close to each other. There was some separation in terms of uh, studio panels and stuff between us, but almost, almost none. So it was like rec- recording in a, in a real acoustic setting, um, which made the music easy and the mixing a little bit more complex. Um, and the direction really amounted to things like me turning to Warren, I think, and this would relate to, let's pick a specific track, the third one, which I think is called uh, Invocation. And we've been, we've been playing enough already. We played everything basically in one take. We had almost no wasted music. After a take or two, with some listen back, we knew that something was going on that was really so strong that we didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) We didn't want to burst the bubble. And we basically went back in the studio and stopped talking and just recorded one cut after the other after the other. Didn't listen to anything until we got done because we knew that something was happening. You know, no matter what would have happened with all those guys in the room, it would have been a great thing. But sometimes the spirits are in the room, too, and I think that was the case when we did the recording. We were very fortunate uh, to have that arrive in the way that it did. So on the third cut, in invocation, I, I, I look at Warren and I say, all right, I want you to start on the low orchestra bass drum, just the bass drum, and then some metal with a lot of space. And Joe, I don't want you to play right away. That's the only thing that I told them. And I didn't even know what I was going to do. I picked up a certain mute that I like, which I do 
certain types of things with, and I started to play, and after that, one thing led to another. I knew what was going to come, and sometimes I had no idea what was going to come, and sometimes I was egged on by other people, like Joe was, is really great at doing this, too. We all inspired each other, I guess is what I'm trying to say with that. So, um, but I, I might indicate uh, we haven't done anything uh, in a brisk tempo, or I might say I'd like to do a piece that just uses the marimba, or on this piece, I want you to pull out this poem. Even the poem that he read... I, he had one that he brought with him. He read me about three lines of it. I told him to stop and that I didn't want to hear the whole thing, but that's the one I wanted him to do. And we set up the mics and he did it, and we hadn't heard the poem before he did it. So, like the music, we, we, we treated the text in the same manner. We didn't um, prep for it, really, other than just to, to go ahead and respond to it. So, um, is that what you were. Um, Yes, very much so. And it, it's, it sounds like a situation many people that I've interviewed have talked about uh, the, the satisfaction of being present in the moment um, when playing this music. And uh, this sounds very much like that kind of a situation where the, the listening is very intense and the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual environment, really. You know, there's this... It's like a, a group meditation or something like that. You all enter the, into this particular space with each other, and then things open and things arrive, and <laughs> you know. And so I, I, I would I would be remiss if I didn't say that it would. I mean, it's true it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't put everybody in the room and we hadn't done anything. But it's really not as simple as that. It's true that it wouldn't happen if Stephen hadn't asked us and invited us to the studio. And if we all hadn't had a good night's sleep and a good breakfast, but it isn't as simple as that. You know, I could say that it's true that it wouldn't have happened unless I had spent all these years preparing and was completely ready for this day in my life. And the same thing with Joe and the same thing with Warren. But it's not as simple as that. I don't mean to sound mystical either, but it's, it's how things happen in music is complex. And I don't mean to say that it's... Um, uh, that one can't create situations where these things happen because obviously that's what we did. But it's a very, um, a very complex and a very layered situation. How these things come into being and and, and open and, and flower and, and, and uh, in the best of them, which I think this album, you know, not to sound unhumble, um, we could say is is. is uh, 
one of those situations. So kind of rambling and getting off track, but. Stephen, you uh, you mentioned earlier, and I I've seen this on your your blog as well, uh, your interest in uh, a local music scene, local and regional music. Can you can you talk about that? Why it's important to you, and how it f- factors into your life? I like to work all over the place. I like to travel, but I I, I I have to say more than any other kind of work that I like to do. I like to work close to home. I like to work where I live for a lot of different reasons. Uh, some of them are pragmatic and, and economically based, and some of them are just the fact that it's great to run into um, people that I know that saw last night's concert in the aisles of the grocery store, you know, or at the farmer's market or something like that. It's great to have people that, that come to a series of different concerts over a period of years and see a group of all and have things to say about that, whether they're musicians or critics or not. They're just listeners. That's a really, really um, wonderful thing. And there's a kind of listening that goes along with those kind of relationships and those repeat contacts with an audience that creates a ground for creation that's extremely powerful. I mean, when you have an audience that really fully enters into the process with the people who create the music, some other things are possible. So, And that's not to say that I couldn't get on a plane and fly somewhere and have that same experience. It's just really grand when it's close to home. And also, from a labor standpoint, I've been very active uh, as an organizer and presenter and a musician talking about the fact that, you know, um, working where I live, I should get paid like the guys that come in from out of town. This is a national dilemma in our country where we favor, whether it's our food or a lot of other cultural things uh, that we like, things that come from far away. It must be better if it's from far away, but if it's from close by, it can't possibly be good. We're getting over that with our food, but we need to kind of move into our culture now. (laughs) (laughs) So I can get in a car and a plane and go anywhere from 50 miles to 500 to 5,000 miles and get paid and treated the way I should. But if I walk down the street and do the same thing that I did in one of those other locations where I live, I may have someone say, well, help us out. We don't have any money. You were from the corner, and you really don't need any money. So there's the whole thing about labor and how you... uh, how one gets paid, and 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 I don't mean to sound crass when I when I just talk about the pay part of it because it's also about how you get treated, and 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 paying someone appropriately is just a gesture of respect. It's only one way to let someone know you value them, but it's here in the material world a fairly significant one. So it's 
So I've been concerned with that. Um, I'm in the middle of a project now with um, uh, Mario Pavone and David Darling and some other people, um, which, in fact, we're finally, after two years of local and regional touring, are recording at Firehouse 12 in a couple of weeks, actually, on the 20th. Um, the whole premise of it, and the funding came from the State Arts Council, was to to... We, the four of us as composers that were improvisers lived in the state of Connecticut, intentionally had been here for years, and really felt strongly about creating a work environment where we lived and needed help to do it from the Arts Council because it wasn't always possible. We even went to the local presenters in these various places in New Haven and Hartford and other cities and said, look, uh, we want to partner with you, and to, to us that's an active word, and so we're actually going to give you half of the cost of the artist fees, but here's what we need to be paid. But we're going to pay for half of it with this grant. You'll put in more than that amount when you do your publicity work, when you have the lights on, the heat on, the air conditioning on, you did the publicity work, but we want to contribute to the to what is really a, um, you know, a hard work to get an audience in to really, really participate with the music. So, um, that's been fun, and as, as we've gotten more involved in it, it's, it's something that has made more and more sense not only to to those of us who are doing the work but to to a number of other people look at what taylor's doing right now he's in a five-state new england uh bicycle tour he calls it the acoustic bicycle tour where he gets on his bike with a uh, holton pocket cornet that our friend michelle cote who played with us with bill dixon uh sent him in the mail and and he rides from state to state and he plays with different people in each of the states that he's in and then rides um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually uh, riding my bicycle to go see uh, one of the shows on that tour when Taylor and Anthony Braxton played together in Amherst. So. Oh well, there you go, man. There yeah. you go. In my daytime a, life, you... I'm uh, the head of the New York Bicycle Coalition. So Taylor oh, and bicycles, well, and how can you go wrong? So. <laughs> I, I think the whole thing is uh, is 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 grand. I mean, it's it's certainly clever from a marketing standpoint, but the truth of it. And the point that it brings home and the way that it brings attention to the work and the singularity of the people who are doing this particular work is, is really um, um, great. But that's, that's Taylor. That's the way, that's the way he... Uh... And, you know, interestingly enough, when you mention Taylor, that's really how I, mentioned, how I met Stephen Walcott. You talk about relational stuff, right? Even the business was, was relational. I met Stephen Walcott when... Taylor and I recorded our double trio album together live at uh, the Festival for New Trumpet Music a number of years back, and, and Stephen was the guy who recorded it and released it. And that's how he met me. So I really met him through um, through Taylor, through doing that collaborative project where we put both of our trios together and recorded it. Uh, Warren was in that in tr- that trio and on that recording, actually, but had a, a different guitar player because the guitar player was drawn from my... Um, my Chat at the time it was a guy named Alan Jaffe. So, um, so like the music, even even how the business arrived, it was relational. You look at at, at the engine rec- record label and what Stephen is doing, and he's championing people like Warren Smith, who's also in my trio. He just recorded in a small uh, chamber orchestra album for Warren, and has done some other stuff too, and has a lot of other plans for. Uh, for Warren, he's trying to get uh, Taylor's mentor, uh, Bill Lowe, the bass drum modus and tuba from tuba player from Boston, to um, to get involved too in some projects. So 
even the way that Stephen approaches his label and 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 develops the work, I would say is very much about uh, relational um, working. You might call it an extended family model in a certain sense. Uh, so. Stephen, finally, uh, I know that you are uh, working on uh, what I imagine will be the final album of new music of Bill Dixon's, uh, kind of a companion piece to the Tapestries for Small Orchestra. Can you uh, say something about that? Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, as you said, uh, it's not even kind of a companion piece. It was intended exactly as that. And and on the way back from from Victoriaville with Bill, Bill said very specifically that he felt that we had created a good... um, bookend or a good partner to the piece Small Tapestries for Orchestra. We've been invited by the presenter to bring the same ensemble up. Uh, Bill's response was not to replicate anything but to write completely new music, um, which he did. Um, And it was a great effort for him to go up there. He basically came home after the concert and went to bed and died three weeks later at home with his family around him. Um, Not a complete surprise, although people have asked me if we if you know Bill knew that he was dying and if we if that had affected his work meaning did he stop working we had already been invited to build a New England orchestra at a school outside of Boston and had met with the faculty there and we're planning on starting a New England orchestra the working title was Orchestra New England that I'd set up with Bill Lowe um, we would have started it this fall with him we never had any plans not to continue working and we never really necessarily thought that Bill wouldn't beat it because he's such a fighter <laughs> But we did the recording, uh, and it's great. Uh, Taylor and I just listened to the roughs, and I talked with Michelle Levasseur up in the studio last week. And the intent is that it'll be out on the Victo label by the end of this year. But it's worth saying, and I hope that people hear this, that it's not the last album of Bill Dixon's music. Now, it's true, it's the last thing that he created in his life so chronologically in terms of his direct involvement and when he created the piece yeah it's the last piece of music 
but uh, there's a team of us right now that Bill set up in the, in the six to eight months before he passed that are overseeing the preparation for archiving of his entire estate, all of his papers, his scores, his music. There are unreleased um, studio-grade recordings. For instance, the recordings that he made when he did the duet tour with uh, Cecil Taylor back in, I think, the early 90s. Those have never seen the light of day, but they're something that people need to hear. We're also on the phone with a gentleman, gentleman named Jonathan Horwich, who you might know if you follow uh, reissues. He just did the um, Carter Bradford reissue that was distributed through Mosaic Records uh, and he has gotten licensing permission from Sony who owns the RCA catalog now to reissue intents and purposes uh, what some people consider Bill's seminal album I might argue with that but it's, it's, it's up there it's just been out of print for years uh, and, and so as as officers of the estate or whatever you want to call it we've been working with him to make sure that, that that's an optimum reissue situation trying to connect him with correct information and, and making sure that the sound is right so there's in a way ironically even more work going on now than there might have been in the last 10 years with certain parts of of, of Bill's oeuvre you know he often talked about how he thought the music business was fundamentally necrophiliac and that if people wanted to honor artists, they should honor them while they were still alive uh, and there to appreciate um, the kudos. Uh, so it's in some ways ironic that this is all going on, but I think it's a great thing. I mean, Bill did a huge amount of work. He wasn't just a composer, he was also a trumpet player and an improviser. Um, he was a remarkable painter and visual artist. And, um, an inveterate uh, keeper of journals and memoirs and writing and uh, uh, a real mo role model. I'm not saying I want to be exactly like Bill Dixon, but uh, he's inspired me very deeply. And yes, we are very much involved with that. And then the last thing I'll say about that is that uh, I've been invited to fly over to a festival called uh, Follow the Sound which started in the early 70s. It's in Antwerp in Belgium. I think it was started by Fred Van Hove. Um, a gentleman named Rob Lurento has asked me to come over and join two other really different trumpet players um, of also different ages, uh, Franz Kogelman from uh, Austria and Jacques Courcil, uh, who originally from Martinique in Paris, who now lives in Germany. Uh, to do something between the three of us that pays some homage to to Bill and his work, and that's been kind of interesting because I think the festival really wanted us all to take a solo, and our response has been not to do that, but we're going to do some groupings in threes and twos, and the bassist uh, Barry Guy may join us, but that's still up in the air at this point, so um, that's another way that, that Bill's thing is still going on. Anybody who's listening that really digs Bill should at the moment go to Facebook. We've taken down the old web page and a new one is coming, but there's a huge amount of uh, material, personal remembrances, and great photographs about Bill and his work on Facebook. And by the way, besides from my blog, that's a great place to find me. <laughs> so. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, my guest is Stephen Haynes. He and Warren Smith and Joe Morris have a new recording called Parhesia. It's on the uh, Engine Studios label. Uh, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, speak with you, and I thank you for taking the time to do it. 
Well, thank you for the, your interest uh, in the work, and, and I also thank your audience for listening. And I'm going to, you know, um, at the risk of stating the obvious, which I tend to excel at doing, I'll say to everybody, if they really, really dig the music, then the best thing they can do, they would be two things they could do. First thing they should do, not to be crass again, would be buy the CD. Don't just burn it from a friend, but buy a copy so that the artist gets some money. And then if you really like it, tell all your friends about them about the music and tell them to do the same thing. So, <laughs> Great advice, and I, uh, I second all of that. Well, thank you very much again, Stephen Haynes. It's been a pleasure to all talk right. to you. Thank you very much. conditions since the Great Depression uh, which Great Depression artificial problems drugs tobacco and alcohol kill more people than any US war Other illegal drugs, a problem of customs regulation. Crack, China White, chemically manufactured in the U.S., desired public consumption is also a big problem. A big problem. A big problem. Desired public consumption is also a big problem. Violence, drug wars, anti-gun control legislation. Access to children, lack of jobs, other economic opportunity, lead youths into selling drugs. Want a job? It's easy. Help your family get along. Getting still, America is by far the best place to live for me in this world today for cultural and political reasons. I might get arrested for saying these things in another country. That's music from Stephen Haynes, Warren Smith, and Joe Morris from their engine recording, Parhesia. 
I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show and support the show at the same time, and a donate button if you'd like to contribute directly to the Jazz Session. My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet who recorded the theme music for this program. They've got a new record called Farcical Built for Six, which you will find at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.